0: This recording is a production of Mennonite School Services, a ministry of Faith Builders educational programs. More recordings are available on our website, www.christianlearning.org. This session was recorded at our Teachers Conference on October 14-16, to 2011, in Guy's Mills, Pennsylvania. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Several years ago, why don't you just hold those handouts to the end? Thank you, I should have told you that. Uh, (laughs) There'll be the summary uh, statement of the message this morning. Uh, Several years ago, uh, in our ministry in the local Franklin County Jail, as we were coming out, there was a man in a holding cell who was not permitted to come to the meetings. And he said to us, he said, I've watched you, brethren, come in, and I'm watching you leave. And he said, there seems to be something different about you. Is there something different about the message you have? That was a rather startling question. And I right away wanted to make a disclaimer. I did not want to criticize anybody else who comes in to minister in the prison. So I could honestly say I never heard anybody else teach here. So I really don't know what others teach when they come in here. But if you're asking me if what we teach is different from the popular gospel that you would hear uh, in general, uh, yes, there's a huge difference And he said, uh, well, how would you explain that difference? I said, well, I said, we believe that uh, to be a Christian is to confess Jesus as Lord and then to obey everything he taught in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, he said, isn't that what all Christians teach? And I said, well, do they? I said, Jesus said that uh, lust is so serious that uh, you must get victory over it, even if it means doing violence to your body. And I said, uh, to me, I see people who make that popular profession, who, uh, who don't uh, take lust very seriously and, and uh, walk around uh, undressed and go to the beach and whatever all else. And I said, Jesus said it's wrong to swear an oath. That's sort of passe, I think, with most people. I said, Jesus said it's wrong to divorce and remarry. And you know what's going on in, in that popular uh, gospel group. I said, Jesus said that it's wrong to take up weapons. It's wrong to fight. It's wrong to resist evil with violence. I said, Jesus said it's wrong to accumulate wealth. And he said, uh, is that what you believe? And I said, yes. Is that what you practice? I said, not perfectly, but that's what I, that's, that's, that's what I aim to practice. Is, are there other people like you? I said, yes, there's a whole congregation of us, and there are many other congregations. He said, well, if that's what you teach, then your gospel is very different. To me, the tragedy of Mennonite experience is when the church needed revival, and it it had its needs at the end of the 19th century, that we didn't look to our own heritage for that revival, but we looked elsewhere. And now we have a generation of young people, like I was growing up, thinking that they are basically <clears throat> like all the rest theologically, except for two distinctive differences, non-resistance and non-conformity. I'm talking about even our plainer groups. That's what I believed growing up, and that was reinforced because it often was said from the pulpit that we were distinctive, we had two distinctives, non-resistance and non-conformity. And the implication was that everything else was basically the same as what everybody else believed theologically. I didn't realize till many years later that our own confession of faith basically said that. Uh, we had always gone by the Dortrecht Confession of Faith historically, but then in 1921, in the middle of the modernist controversy, our church felt it needed to make some stronger statements about creation about the divinity of Christ, about the inspiration of scripture, and so they met in Garden City, Missouri, and they came up with what is known as the 1921 uh, Garden City Confession of Faith, and it makes a very a plain statement in there, this is not a replacement of the Dork Confession of Faith, it's only uh, clarifying some things, it's an amendment or an addition or a clarification of some issues, and uh, it's to be taken together with the Schleitheim Confession of Faith, but When I was instructed for baptism, that was the only confession that was used. The Schleidheim Confession of Faith I never had gone through until later in my life. So I picked up this Garden City Confession of Faith later in life and looked at it. Well, in fact, I I was forced to do that because our congregation wanted to reprint it, and they said, we think there's some errors in this. You're a copy editor. Would you copy edit this? Well, in the process of copy editing, I became more and more troubled as I read it. There is not a statement in there about the lordship of Jesus Christ as being the central focus of our commitment in, uh, as, as Christians. <clears throat> um, the statement about salvation is basically an evangelical statement. It actually has the word alone in there, which Luther put in, and actually people argued with him that he should never have put there we are saved by faith and grace alone, that that's not in the Bible. That's in the Garden City Confession of Faith. And it's a very short statement to, that is an amendment to the uh, uh, Dortrek Confession of Faith. And, and that, that, con- that statement, that corresponding statement, is a statement of repentance and amendment of life. It's a very good statement. And if the Garden City Confession had been taken along with that, and I had been instructed in both, it would probably have been okay. But we basically were not using the Dortrek Confession of Faith. So all I got was this Reformed <laughs> statement about... And if you look at that Garden City Confession of Faith, it's basic. You could give that to any evangelical, and they'd be pretty happy with it, with a a few exceptions. And then at the end, the thing that shocked me, was at the end, they have the very last article is a statement called Restrictions. And there is the nonconformity and nonresistance. No wonder my friends thought we were living in bondage with our distinctives. We told them it was restrictions. God help us. To me, my, the ability and call to live different is part of a wonderful freedom <laughs> and non-resistance. The ability to live in peace and the power of the Holy Spirit to do so and the reality of it is part of a tremendous freedom. Restrictions. And then I saw what had happened. We basically felt that we needed to improve our theology, and we basically bought into an evangelical theology. And then I went back and looked at our history and read some of the writings, and I'm going to try to give to you this morning basically what I found. And I said to myself, why didn't those people... Who were interested in revival why didn't they go back to this heritage and I want to make a disclaimer this morning our Anabaptist forefathers would be horrified if I did anything here this morning to focus you on him on them to have you follow them I only want to lift out the tremendous passion that they had to focus on the person of Jesus. And I only want to use them as an example on anything we can learn from them. But that's where they would want us to focus. That's where they were focused. They wouldn't want us to follow them. In fact, if you follow them, you end up like a few Mennonite groups that decided to follow them. And so they approve of divorce and remarriage. They have a strange view of Jesus' uh, incarnation. <clears throat> they uh, practice a, 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 a very, very strong usage of the ban. And a few things that the Anabaptists did that really weren't very good, but they're following the Anabaptists. I don't want to follow the Anabaptists, but I am inspired by their example. I'm inspired by their thinking. I'm inspired by their theology. I'm inspired by their focus on Jesus. (coughs) So I grew up thinking that we had the same theology about God, about Christ, the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, man, the Bible, grace, salvation. I I figured that was all the same. But we had two distinctives, nonconformity and nonresistance. And by the way, I'm not denigrating those two distinctives but i don't call them restrictions that's all i'm saying <laughs> all right so and in as i was growing up i heard a t- constant downplaying of works everybody was afraid we'd become legalists if we concentrated on work so uh, and maybe this wasn't true with you but i grew up in a mainline mennonite church so i heard statements like this very frequently we are saved by faith alone Our works have nothing to do with our salvation. In fact, I decided uh, if I ever heard that again, I think I'm going to stand up and stop the meeting and say, wait a minute, that is such an important statement. I want to hear a clarification. What do you mean by that? Because I grew up in a very conservative church. We all wore plain coats. Some of the men wore black hats and suspenders. We drove black cars. We had no radios. I mean, that's, that's, that's how we were living. And so I decided that what I really had heard was this. We're saved by faith alone. Our works have nothing to do with salvation, but buddy, you better be good anyway. <laughs> Not a very strong incentive for holiness, by the way. And almost all of my friends, I grew up with 20 boys my age to take or, uh, give two years. It was a large church and a large youth group, and only one of those would make any kind of common cause with what I represent today. They've all gone to the evangelicals, and some of them aren't anything. And that's not a surprise to me, because for years they heard that our works have nothing to do with salvation. We're saved by grace alone, and those churches, of course, teach that, and so that's where they went. And then they carried it to its conclusions. I was told as I was growing up that the Anabaptist distinctive was sola scriptura. We were focused on the Bible. And then I found out, well, so were the Lutherans, and so were the Reformed, and so were the Catholics. They all defended their views from the Bible. Well, then how were we different? Well, maybe we, maybe, maybe we emphasize the Bible more than anybody else. That's what I want. These were questions as I was growing up. It, it, obviously, from what you're hearing, it, some of this made no sense to me. And I don't think it made any more sense to a lot of other people for, uh, in view of what happened. So what distinguished the Anabaptists? How were they different from the others? What can we learn from them? Well, the first little light that came on in my mind was one morning at Hartville Christian School, John Overholt came to have devotions, and he made a statement that has stuck in my mind like a cocklebur that was a, a stimulus to me to, to, to investigate this. He said, the Anabaptists are the bridge to the early church. And I had this picture, this bridge in my mind, so I thought, well, I'm going to go to the other end of the bridge, and I'm going to compare the early church with the Anabaptists. And sure enough, for a 1,000 years, we had a departure from early church experience for 1,000 years. And then here was this group of people, and I'm not sure how much they knew about the early church. I don't think they were early church historians. But in their own study, in their own honesty and their own obedience to the revelation God gave us, they managed somehow to bring about a revival of what the early church had believed and had been lost for a thousand years. And I was blessed. Here here, here were two groups of people that were basically responding to God in the same way, even though there had been this big uh, hiatus between the two groups. The Anabaptists were a return to the original definition and practice of Christian faith. And what was it? What was it they did differently? Was it sola scriptura? They certainly were students of the Bible who could quote from memory to their interrogators scriptures for every question that they were asked and every answer that they gave. They were thoroughly versed in the scriptures. I don't want to in any way minimize that. But that's not what made them distinctive. There were other people who were thoroughly versed in the scriptures. The thing that made them different was their passion and devotion to Christ. Their commitment to seriously live out everything he taught. And I tell people who are talking about, well, we need more miracles in the church. And I said, well, if you want miracles in the church, then you need to go back to the Sermon on the Mount because it will take a miracle to do everything Jesus taught. <laughs> You can't live that life without miracles. <laughs> you can't love your enemies. You can't be burned at a stake. You can't, you can't uh, uh, have your word be honest without oaths. You can't uh, uh, have marriages that are intact. You, can't, you, can't, you, you just simply can't do that. Those are supernatural acts of God. If you want to see miracles, live the Sermon on the Mount. You don't need to do something stupid and strange. Just, just be honest with Jesus, and you'll have to have miracles for that life to be possible. Well, I'm getting a little off the subject. But the passion of the early church was that I may know him. As ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. He that saith he abideth in Him, ought himself also, so to walk as he walked. That was what made them what they were. It wasn't Sola Scriptura, although they, they were really focused on the Bible, because that's our revelation of him But to them, the Bible was a means to an end. It was not an end in itself. The the evangelical mind has made the Bible an end in itself. They're they're basically focused on the text. Our Anabaptist forefathers did what we sing sometimes, beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord, not in some extra-biblical sense, but in the sense that we read the Scriptures, Jesus is revealed, we look then to Him, and we follow Him. And we don't stay stuck in the text. In fact, the Anabaptist said no, no interpretation of the scriptures is the proper interpretation if it violates the teaching and example of Christ. He becomes the hermeneutic by which we even understand the book. I hope I'm making myself clear. The truth is in Jesus, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21. And it's interesting to me that there's a whole series of phrases throughout the New Testament. In Christ, unto Christ, to Christ, for Christ just a whole series of prepositional phrases, it's just assumed that if you're a Christian, you are in Christ, and everything is to him and unto him and for him. It's all focused on him in a passionate devotion to follow him, believe him, and actualize his life. That's what made these people different. The other people were sola scriptura too, but they were theologians. They were philosophically manipulating verses into theological systems of thought. And then if you believed those systems of thought then you were Orthodox and you were Christian. And how many understand what I'm saying? Two approaches to the Bible. The one is a revelation of Christ and a passionate devotion to Him personally, and the other one a devotion to principles and ideas and theological concepts and philosophical ideas and manipulation of logic. They did not use the Scriptures to construct exhaustive theological systems. How many have read David Bersow's book? Will the theologians please sit down? I say a hearty amen. The Bible's not a theological, philosophical textbook. In fact, when people got around to trying to understand the Anabaptists, they could hardly even construct a theology. They didn't have any such thing. They didn't manipulate the Bible logically and philosophically and theologically into systems that people had to believe to be orthodox and to be Christians. That wasn't their approach to the scriptures. It wasn't sola scriptura. It was the way they used the scriptures and what they made of them. The matter of fact, are you aware that the Bible was not canonized? The New Testament was not canonized to the 400s? Those early Christians didn't even have a Bible as you have it. They couldn't go to the Bible saying, say, let's do an exhaustive study on the doctrine of angels. They couldn't do it. They didn't have it. They didn't have the text. And they had no concordances. It had been, you'd have had to know the whole thing to get all the verses together. And there was no printing press. And Bibles cost a year's wages if you could get a hold of a hand-copied edition of the Bible. So how in the world were they going to do with the Bible what you have to do with the Bible to be a Christian? They didn't have one. What did they have? They had little fragments. Uh, maybe somebody had the book of uh, Philippians, and, uh, or parts of it, and they passed these around, and they memorized whole portions of it, and they, they held on to these pieces to learn all they could learn about the person of Christ. But it was Christ they were focused on, not the text. You know what Paul's greatest fear was in his lifetime? Listen to this. I fear less by any means as the serpent beguiled eve through his subtlety so he's making this a pretty serious thing so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in christ 1st corinthians 11:3 paul made desperate attempts by these phrases i told you in teaching to make sure people were focused on Christ in simplicity and passion and obedience like he was. Colossians 3.8. Beware lest any man spoil you or rob you of your riches through philosophy and vain deceit. And immediately we think of the secular university. Somebody put this on a card and gave it to me when I went to Shippensburg University. And it's certainly appropriate. But this is not written to people going to secular universities. This was written to Christian people who all were Christians in the church. Beware lest any man rob you of your riches through philosophy and vain deceit. In other words, philosophical and theological manipulation of verses. After the tradition of men, that's how men go about seeking truth. After the rudiments of the world, that's the world's logic. And listen to this and not after Christ. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, the way they go about seeking truth, and not after Christ. There's your prepositional phrase. Now the first generation of Christians had that kind of focus. And then the heresies, what actually happened was, the heresies began to threaten the church. And I would have assumed that the first heresy was an attack on the divinity of Christ. That's probably your assumption too. It may surprise you to discover that the first attack on Christianity was an attack against his humanity. How many have ever heard of the Gnostics? Uh Uh-huh. And so John says, if any man says to you that Christ did not come in the flesh... He is a heretic. The Gnostics separated body and spirit. They had various ways of dealing with that dualism, but that's what they did. They separated body and spirit. Most of them, some of them became ascetics and thought you had to basically kill the body, and the weaker it got, almost you kept it almost to death, and then the spirit was strengthened. That was a very small group. Most of them uh, decided, well, look, (laughs) the body will do its thing, the spirit will do its thing, and uh, what the body does doesn't matter. Uh, basically, spirit is truth, and body is, was created. It's evil. It can't be redeemed. And so let the body do what it wants to do, and we'll worship in the spirit. Now, I can't really go beyond that without making this comment. How many ever heard somebody say, you can't make an evaluation of what you see me do because you don't know what's in my heart? How many have ever heard that? That is pure warmed-over Gnosticism. I'm sorry that I yelled but it makes me angry. (laughs) That there's a difference between my heart and my body. That is nothing but Gnosticism carried into the 21st century. And that was the first attack on Christianity. When somebody tells you that, say, oh, that's the most ancient heresy that the Christian church has ever faced a denial of the humanity of Christ, that he came here, that he limited himself, it behooved him to be made like his brethren in all things so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest and mediate God's grace to men so that they could live like he lived. Well, if you deny Christ's humanity, you're saying that he lived the life of a God, and that's impossible, so we won't even try. And that's what I have evangelicals tell me that. When I press this issue of following Jesus, they finally, finally they'll say, but he was God. And by that, they're saying, we can't live like he lived. That's Gnosticism. That is Gnosticism. And I think the biggest problem today is a denial of Christ's humanity. I'm concerned about the denial of his divinity just as much as you are, but I'm I'm just as concerned about the denial of his humanity because it has tremendous implications of severe... Destruction of genuine Christianity because it means we cannot follow him. He was not like us. All right? So, these heresies started to come in. And instead of doing what Paul or or one of the uh, biblical writers or apostles would have done, instead of confronting that heresy with a, a, a strong affirmation of Christ's humanity and an insistence on following him and and not going off in these different directions, uh, they decided to to fight it with logic. So they started to construct these theologies about the nature of Christ. And so we have the uh, Nicene Creed, and we have the Athanasian Statement, and we have all these creeds trying to codify what we believe. And that became more and more and more elaborate and further and further and further and further away from true Christianity. That's what happened. The Anabaptists were a return from that. They simply bridged over all that and said, no, to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. Forget your theologies, trash them, burn them, whatever you want to do with them. We're not interested in theological debate and argument. Beautiful, beautiful, pristine uh, example of what Christianity was there for quite a a long time. Then we come to the 19th century, and at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, we have modernism raise its ugly head, which denies the inspiration of the scriptures, denies the miracles, denies the divinity of Christ, and all that ugly stuff that began to threaten the church. And the Mennonites did the very same thing (laughs) that the early church did. They decided to fight it with theology. And to me, that was a tragic mistake. I'm not planning to fight anything with theology. The only thing that will successfully stem the tide of wrong thinking and wrong living is a reaffirmation of the Lordship of Christ and the kingdom of God and an obedience to all that that represents. If that doesn't do it, you're not going to solve the problem. Well, let's go back to the early Anabaptists. I, I just gave you a sweep of what happened in the church. And it's just interesting that when the Mennonite church felt like it needed help, it, it resorted to the same theological, philosophical, logical debate Approach to deal with the issue. And I think that was wrong. Now, I want to make a couple things clear. A lot of good things happened with the revivalistic emphasis that they borrowed, by the way, from Finney, not from any Anabaptist. There were many people that did find a genuine relationship with Christ, maybe in spite of a distorted theology. The other thing I want to make clear is what I'm going to talk about now is a comparison between Anabaptism and pure Reformed theology. I've had evangelicals sit in my audience and have been very offended by what I'm going to say, and I should have made it clear that the evangelicals have sort of changed through the years, and some of them believe some parts of Reformed theology, but not other parts, and some people have done this, and they've added adult baptism, which the Reformed theology people didn't do. So you have a great mixture. You have evangelicals. Some will sit in the audience and say, well, we don't believe that, and they don't. But... The Reformed theology out of which their evangelical beliefs morphed, this is where it came from. And it still has many of these elements. So if there's somebody sitting here this morning who's evangelical, and uh, I say something, you say, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's probably true. But you just have changed the package, and uh, you know, that's basically where it all came from. All right, now the first thing I want to talk about is the concept of God. Because... A.W. Tozer says, the most important thought that you will ever have is what you think about God. In fact, he says, if you could extract from any person precisely everything that comes to his mind when the word God is mentioned, you could predict with accuracy everything else about that person. Morally and spiritually. That's how important it is that we have a right concept of God. And so, what did the reformers say about God? Well, they said he's an arbitrary sovereign. He created a bunch of beings, some of which he planned to save, and others that he didn't necessarily say they're going to hell. He just made no plans to save them. We won't talk about the implications of that. He just didn't have any any plan to save those people. The Anabaptists thought that was horrible. What kind of God is that? And what kind of implications would that have for everything else that you think? Well, we'll see. The Anabaptist says that's not true. God created man with free will. Yes, there's some hard scriptures uh, to talk about in relation to that, but it's very clear from from the, the tenor of all of scripture that God's, Will is that every person would be saved. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's God, it, it, God wills that all men would be saved. It's as clear as can be. And then there are a few verses that's a little hard. You've got to work with them a little bit. And maybe we'll have to end up saying we don't even understand them and just put them on a the shelf and let them, uh, God, res- tell us later what they were all about. But we're not going to make the whole Bible say what a couple verses that are difficult to understand say. That doesn't make any sense. So they said man has free will to choose God wills that all people would be saved, and Hans Hut went through cities, and he would just stand in the corner of the street uh, street corner and say, uh, "God's will is that all should be saved. Repent and be baptized." And he invited everybody to do so, and baptized hundreds. Balthasar Hubmeyer countered this. One thing I want to say is this is not just a history lesson. All of the things I'm saying today have relevance today. It's the same questions. It's the same issues. And these people were facing these people every day, just like you do if you dialogue with them, and you're, it's going to be the same issues. Nothing has changed. And the wonderful thing about studying Anabaptist theology, or uh, theology, uh, Anabaptist thought, uh, <laughs> is that they had answers for these. And they're good answers. And you can equip yourself well to answer these issues if you'll read them. The issues haven't changed. They're the same issues. Balthazar Hubmayer said, whoever denies free will the free will of man says that free will is nothing but an empty and useless term without any reality. The same slanders God as a tyrant. That's a pretty strong statement. And I make a statement that people don't like me to make, but I'm going to make it because I believe it. I think it is a blasphemy against his character. It's telling you that God is an awful, awful, awful person. He charges God with injustice and gives manifold cause to the wicked to remain in their sins. Indeed, he overthrows more than half of the scriptures. The proof of this article, if man were robbed of his free will, God could never justly justly condemn the sinner for his sins, for he condemns him for reasons about which man can do nothing. God forbid! Moreover, Christ would be robbed of his just accusation, which he will bring against sinners in the last day, saying, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't come to me, etc. Certainly sinners could excuse themselves with good reason and say, well, it was impossible for me to feed you and clothe you, since I don't have any free will to do so. It was impossible for us to feed and visit you, since we have no free will. Indeed, because of your eternal foreknowledge and judgment, we must go to the devil in his eternal fire to fulfill your foreknowledge. If it follows, moreover, from this destructive teaching that man may justifiably put his guilt on God and say, My stealing and my robbing was not my fault, but God's will, which no one can resist. Without his will, I could not have done it. Because of my own will, I had to do it. Because it is bound and imprisoned. Through this error, all the scriptures would be overthrown, which speak about willing and doing. Well, that's what they believe about God. That's what they believe. Now, there are Reformed theologians that don't. Dave Hunt wrote a book called What Love Is This? And he totally rejects this doctrine. And many of them do. But that was Reformed theology. And the rest of it flows from that. The second thing we want to look at is what did they believe about the nature of man? Now, Reformed theology said man is totally depraved by original sin. And God moved to save some but sins continuing effects preclude a life of genuine Christ likeness luther said the christian is at the same time a sinner and justified and he said to melanchthon sin boldly now the anabaptists countered this by calling attention to the fact that the word original sin is not in the bible the word the term total depravity is not in the bible these are not biblical terms and they did not believe that man was totally depraved. They believed, like the Quakers believed, believe that there was a light that lights every man that comes into the world. And John says that light is so strong that darkness cannot put it out. And every man had that light. And when truth was spoken, it connected with that light. If they would open their hearts to it. That's what the Anabaptists believed. And they believed every man still had that light. They believed that the image of God was never destroyed completely in man. There was always a little bit of it there. Now they believed that man's, Adam's sin gave man what they called neglickite, I think. I don't know German, you people laugh at me. But something like that, which means an inclination to sin. There's a, a strong inclination to sin born into man's nature as a result of Adam's sin. But they did not believe that a person would be lost because of Adam's sin. They said just just as a person must partake of Christ to be saved, a man must partake of sin to be lost. And so if a man goes to hell, it'll be because of his own sin, because he yielded to that inclination, not because of the inclination and not because Adam sinned, but because he participated in it. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But they believed that Christ, when a person yielded to him, Christ introduced into his life God's nature, the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, that could overcome that inclination and give man the power to rise above it and live the life of Christ. To the fatalistic Protestants, the Anabaptists answered in the baptismal instructions in the second half of the 16th century. God in his word commands that one should desist from sin. Whosoever wants to be a child of God must no longer touch the impure. If people then say, we are poor sinners and unable to do the good, we answer that this is nothing but the counsel of the serpent himself. Now, they never claimed to be sinless. They realized that life would be a perpetual struggle against temptation. They knew that the victory over our inclination to sin would never be complete in this life. And they were realistically Uh, aware of the possibility of backsliding but they insisted as long as the believer is fighting soldier-like in the faith of Christ the glory of God is reflected in him even though the struggle may never cease their vision of Christianity was not regulated by a fatalistic concept of sin as their uh, reformed neighbors what did they believe about the nature of Christ I've already alluded to this. The reformers tended to stress his deity to the exclusion of his humanity. You see, theological concern is basically with his divinity. I mean, we have the Trinity Lutheran, we have the Trinity this, the Trinity that, and many of our songs have references to the Trinity, and they all got written because people are so concerned that people are going to somehow minimize the deity of Christ, but the devil sneaked in through the door of denying his humanity while everybody was concerned about the opposite. I'm concerned about any person who minimizes the humanity of Christ. And I was especially perplexed when I first started reading Pilgrim Marpeck, who, by the way, is my favorite author, Anabaptist author. Over and over, he talks about the humanity of Christ. He makes a big issue of it. And then it struck me. Of course, if Christ was different from me, then I, there's no way I can follow him. Our discipleship commitment is based on our belief that Jesus limited himself and came down here and lived as we live with the same resources. The sign miracles are in a different category. He was God and there were flashes of that in his life too. But, but when he had to love his enemy, he had to do it with the same resources you have. When he had to tell the truth, he did it with the same resources you have. He limited himself to the resources you have. So that it is possible for you to live his life because he didn't live it as a God, he lived it as a human, even though he was God. They insisted on his full humanity. And if I say anything today that you want to carry away as supremely important, it is the humanity of Christ. On that foundation rests everything that we believe about what it means to be a Christian. I shouldn't say everything. We also believe in his divinity. There's more. But that's a very important belief. In all things it behooved him to be made likened to his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He was in all points tempted, as we are, yet without sin. And this is the basis for a credible discipleship. If you take this away, we do not have a basis for a credible discipleship. I mean, how can I live the life of a God? It has to be within my reach. And the warning in 1 John 4 2 3, the test of the Antichrist is whether he believes that Jesus came in the flesh. What did they believe about salvation? I'm just giving you the basic theological categories that when I was growing up, it just so we believed the same thing about all these. I mean, these are basic. God, Christ, man. You know, you're sure. No, the theology was very different. Very different. And very positively different. If you think about it, that reform view is very negative. God goes, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." Oh, I was left out. I have a depraved nature. I can't do anything. <clears throat> Yes. First <laughs> uh, John, one four, who shall believe that Jesus Christ was God, come in the flesh, is of God. Um, I've used that in the past to say, you know, i one's, don't believe that, you don't believe that, <that>, 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 that etc. But I'm hearing you say that the Baptist <h- or> Lutheran, the Methodist, also, anyone who is a agnostic would say he was not truly man, come in the flesh. Exactly. Therefore, All right, let me make a disclaimer. (laughs) I'm not judging anybody. God knows what to do with all of this. I'm only talking about what I believe God has revealed to us. And I have to make some contrasts here so you understand what I'm talking about. But I'm not condemning anybody. I believe there are many people out there who are believing and following what they have been taught. God knows what to do with people who... We're all going to be judged on the basis of what God revealed to us. And there are some people who live their whole lives and never even have the opportunity to see what we're talking about. And I'm not judging anybody. I want to make that very clear. These are not judgmental statements. These are clarifications of what we believe in contrast to a theology that I will say the theology was wrong. I think there are many people out there who are doing better than their theology. I meet people who have this theology who are following Christ and are beautiful Christ-like examples, in spite of their theology. And I hope we're better Christians than our theology, too. (laughs) I mean... Uh, to be a Christian is to follow Jesus, and if it's something in our thinking that isn't right and we're following Jesus, that'll be fine. Uh, we should get our thinking straight, too. But anyway, salvation, let's talk about that a little bit. Reformed theology was obsessed with escape from damnation. They were obsessed with that. That was, their, that, that was the whole point, to, get, to escape hell and go to heaven. Well, the Anabaptists were concerned about that, too. It's not that they didn't believe in that reality, but they were so caught up in their obsession with the glorious experience of regeneration and spiritual rebirth and the, uh, the actualization of the kingdom of God that that sort of, you know, would take care of itself. They didn't talk a lot about that. In fact, if somebody comes to me and says, are you saved, brother? That's, that's the, of course, the litmus test. I said, well, what do you mean? The word saved is used in the Bible in the past perfect tense. I have been saved. It's used in the Bible in the past tense. I was saved. It's used in the Bible in the present tense. I am being saved. And it's used in the future tense that we shall be saved. Now, which one do you mean? Because I am still in this one that is being saved. And I won't really be able to use that term in its fullness until it's all done. I'm being saved, but your statement smacks me as something that's signed, sealed, and delivered that's an event, not a process. And I don't believe that. If that's what you're asking me, no, I do not believe that. I believe salvation is a process, and I'm in the process, and I'm in God's good care, and I'm, in, I'm at peace with him, and if I would die, uh, I'm still going to be at peace with him. But saved? I don't like the way that sounds. That sounds like something that's done, That I don't have anything more to do. Actually, what the Amish are saying is that idea gone to seed. What they are saying has its roots in Anabaptism. The Anabaptists were not obsessed with being saved in the sense of escaping hell. That wasn't, yeah. The, 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 what, what you're hearing the Amish and, and there are older groups say that it, it grew out of a theology that comes right out of Anabaptism. That was not their theology But then those groups sometimes have done something with it they shouldn't have done with it. Then then they act like they don't even know what their relationship is with God. And the Anabaptists surely knew. You don't go and be burned at the stake if you're not sure about that. But their emphasis was on rebirth, regeneration, the kingdom of God. And they were so excited that that did not worry them. They believed salvation was a process. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God into salvation for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. God's righteousness just keeps growing in my life from faith to faith. That's, that was, uh, to them, salvation was a process, not an end. It was a means, not an end. <clears throat> All right, Their emphasis was on childlike obedience to Christ. Zwingli said, and they learned from Zwingli, to be a Christian is not to talk about Christ but to walk as he walked. Now the Protestants or the Reformers could think about a dying Savior and a future judge, but not someone to follow. They believed Christ's life as a standard was impossible, and that it would lead back to salvation by works and legalism. And I hear that in our circles. I mean, people are so scared they might do a righteous deed. Isn't that strange? The Anabaptists had no such phobia. In fact, they did not believe what, sometimes people try to modify this and say, well, uh, we're saved by faith. And our works are a fruit of our faith. No, the Anabaptists would have said that's what Luther said in his better moments. They said our works, (laughs) they said our works are an expression of our faith. They are part of our faith. The works are part of faith. It's all one package. It's not a fruit over here's works in a test tube and here's faith. No, 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 no. It's a package. The, 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 the works are simply an outward expression, but they are faith themselves. When you reach out a hand to love your enemy, I'm sorry, that's faith. It takes faith to do that. Your natural inclinations wouldn't do it. Your uh, belief in what his response is going to be. Your, everything is against it. You do it only because Jesus said to do it. That's faith. And that's a work You call it whatever you want to call it. In fact, to obey the Sermon on the Mount, the things that you will do will be acts of faith. When people bring up this dichotomy between faith and works, by the way, Luther put that there. That wasn't there to Luther. And we've been paranoid ever since. And I say to people, to obey Jesus is not legalism. All right. The Anabaptists believed that faith was not a matter of intellect. It was a matter of obeying Christ. All of life was literally brought under the lordship of Christ in a covenant of discipleship. What what were the beliefs about the word of God? Well, now certainly their belief was the same there. No, it was not. They believed that the scriptures were a means to an end. The reformers made them an end in themselves to be manipulated into theological and philosophical constructs of theology. The Anabaptists said, no, 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 no. The end is not getting these verses all lined up. The end is to see Christ, close the book, and follow him. Don't keep focusing here Follow the person of Christ that you saw revealed in the text. This is infallible. This is inerrant. I want to make that clear this morning. I'm not saying anything less than what you believe about the Bible. But I will say it is a means to an end. And people get stuck in the text and they still manipulate verses and they carry around little phrases and judge each other by them instead of seeing the picture of Jesus Christ and honestly duplicating and following his life. I told you, they said no interpretation of the scripture is a proper interpretation if it contradicts the example and teaching of Christ. Now what happened was this. You had a primary focus on the Gospels. The theologians love the epistles. And we keep the epistles right there with the Gospels. We're not putting them beneath them. But then the the, the theologians do something strange. They go off with the epistles and they make something out of them theologically that contradicts what Jesus said. And the Anabaptists said, no, 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 no. If you want to do it right, you will interpret the epistles through the Gospels. Don't you dare interpret the Gospels through your misconstrued idea of the epistles. How many understood what it is? I said, misconstrued idea of the epistles. By the way, their favorite epistle was 1 Peter. And at the end of 1 Peter, Peter says, there are those who take Paul's words, which are hard to be understood, and they rest them, and they knew who those people were. They liked Peter. Peter says, baptism's an answer of a good conscience toward God. They were Anabaptists. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. There's your kingdom of God. Always be ready to give an answer, and they had to do it all the time. Charity covers a multitude of sins. The end of all things is at hand. They believed they were living on the very cusp of Christ's return, and, and they, were, they wanted to make sure they were part of the kingdom because then they'd participate in, the, in what was to follow in a kingdom sense. Well, what did they believe about grace? So what they believed about the word of God is that nothing dare contradict Jesus' clear teaching and example. That that was the norm by which all Scripture must be understood. Grace. Well, they were really up against it with this one, (laughs) because that was the mantra of the day. Grace, 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 and it still is. I said nothing has changed. Now, they believed in grace, but they were up against... What you're up against if you try to talk about love, you have to begin to clarify. And so they tended not to use the word very much. You won't find this word much in their writings, I think for two reasons. The the Roman Catholics had made something out of grace that was wrong. They had means of grace, which was all these uh, uh, works of penance and and the uh, Eucharist and all of that. Uh, And so that, that was a problem. And on the other side was the problem of the people who said it's all grace, it doesn't matter what we do. And so they, they had this problem with the word grace. And I think that's why it doesn't appear very much in their writing. They asked this question. They're, they're I'm going to ask you, how many times is the word grace found in the Gospels? Now, we're not saying it's not important. It's in the epistles, and the epistles are just as inspired as the Gospels. But let's just go to the Gospels and, and see Christ's usage of the term, or the Gospels' usage. How, you want to make a guess? How many times is grace in the the Gospels? Three times. It's actually four. All right. Three of them in John 1 and one in Luke. And that's it. The word grace does not appear in the Gospels except for those four times. But they did believe in grace. When they do speak about it, they speak about it this way. They speak of grace as the creative energy and love of God in action. Beginning with creation. And any time you see God taking something and making something good out of it, that's grace at work. That's what they believed. I think that's inspiring. I love that definition of grace. Grace, according to Pilgrim Marpech, Mar- was the act whereby God renews the divine image in man and thus makes the believer a participant in his divine nature. Grace produces a restoration of man's original nature. That's what they believed about man's original nature. Renewing his lost faculties and virtues. As a man receives grace, new life arises in his heart. Makes him ready to be a follower of Christ. And as such, to be a lover of his neighbor and a brother of his fellow man. What did they believe about the Holy Spirit? Now, it's really strange that our Anabaptist people had to be caught up short by the charismatics on this whole thing. Because there was nobody in the 16th century who spoke about the Holy Spirit as much as they did. You find it on almost every page of their writing. They believed they were living in the age of the Spirit. They believed that that, uh, God was doing everything, recreating man, recreating his kingdom by the Spirit. It was all by the Spirit. In fact, I'm not going to do this because I'm not sure about it and I don't have much money, but I'd almost give you a dollar for every page in Anabaptist writing you would find without the Holy Spirit on the page. I mean, it is that frequent in their writings. And it's strange that Mennonites would have had a problem knowing what they believe about the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'd like to ask this morning, what do you believe the filling of the Holy Spirit is? That's that's the question that you're always asked. What do you believe about the filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Anabaptists had a clear definition. They said the filling of the Holy Spirit happens at conversion... And what happens at conversion is it's like a light bulb comes on inside of you. That's the best way I can picture it. And all of a sudden, your whole being is illuminated. Your mind, your will, your thoughts, and you see. You see what the Bible means. It, of course, was inspired by that same Holy Spirit. And now this light comes on, and there's a connection. You all of a sudden can see what the Bible's talking about. You can see what's going on in the world finally with eyes that, that, that God uses to look at the world. You begin to see. You see yourself. You understand your sin. You understand your need. You make response to that. It's it's all of a sudden it's a new world. You are illuminated by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> they believe that the Holy Spirit's work in the life would do five things it would create a new birth. 1 Corinthians twelve three says no man can say that Jesus is a cursed uh, uh, who's a Christian, and by the Holy Spirit no one can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So that's an act of God. That's an act of the Holy Spirit. If you can honestly say Jesus is Lord, now there are many people going to say Lord Lord. He's not talking about saying the word. He's saying if you can honestly get all of your life surrendered to Jesus and say Jesus is Lord, and that's what it means. That's a new birth. By the Holy Spirit they believe that we were illuminated by the Holy Spirit I've already described that they we were sanctified by the Holy Spirit they believe the minute that confession was made and that light bulb came on the life began to change and there was power there by the Holy Spirit to change the life and it wasn't a pretty process You get the idea, oh, we have these holiness meetings and people get happy and they run around the tent with chairs under their arms and jump up and down and men jump over pulpits and, I mean, sanctification is just one glorious, hilarious experience. No, 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 no. no that's, not what the Holy, that's not what the Anabaptists believe. They believe that sanctification was a painful process of cutting off of the flesh, just like if you're going to take a tree and make anything out of it, you've got to saw it. <laughs> they believe that's what the Holy Spirit was doing in Sanctification. And they believed that that's where the cross was. The cross was where <coughs> your will, your will, <coughs> God's will, crossed. And there's where sanctification took place. I'm almost finished. <coughs> they believed that this was genuine. Did, their people, did the people around them believe it was genuine? Well, let's read what they said. Here is Capito, one of the reformers at Strasbourg, who was a good friend of the Anabaptists, although he disagreed with them. That's what he said. I testify before God that I cannot say that on account of a lack of wisdom they are somewhat different toward earthly things, but rather from divine motives. Bullinger, who was a bitter critic of them, and this statement is sort of funny, uh, the way he explains them at the end. But this is what he has to say about them. Those who unite with them will by their ministers be received into their church by rebaptism and repentance and newness of life. They henceforth lead lives under a semblance of quite spiritual conduct. Now here's a description of what their worst cri- one of their worst critics saw in their lives. I wonder if he came in here today, or came, if he came into a typical Mennonite community, if he would say this. They denounce covetousness, pride, profanity, lewd conversation, immorality, drinking, gluttony. In short, their hypocrisy is great and manifold. (laughs) But he had to admit that that's what you saw. It wasn't real, of course, but that's what you saw if you saw an Anabaptist. Sebastian Frank who was a friend. As far as I can see, they taught nothing but love, faith, and the cross. They broke bread with one another as an evidence of their unity and love. They helped each other faithfully with mutual aid, lending and giving, and they taught that all things should be held in common. And I'm going to end there. There's a lot more to be said. (laughs) But that's the basic theology. It was also a kingdom theology a two-kingdom theology. The the dichotomy with the Anabaptists was not between faith and works. It was between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. There's where the the big dichotomy was. It was a hermeneutic brotherhood. We're going to study the Bible, but who's going to interpret it? The reformers said, well, the specialists, the guys who've gone off to theological school, they're the only ones who can really understand it. So they will formulate the creeds, and we'll just say we believe the creeds. The Anabaptists said, no, 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 no. The the, the word is understood as it is discussed. Discussed among God's spirit-filled people. And as they come to a unity of understanding like they did at Schleitheim, they came there in all kinds of disagreement and confusion at the end of the meeting they said, God led us together. And they said that's how the Bible is is interpreted. And we could go on. There's a lot more to be said. But anyway, I think I've said enough. I did want to make it clear in my uh, message yesterday on the kingdom, I gave the impression that the kingdom basically only ever uh, happened in a few little instances. No, the kingdom is happening... uh, in a much broader sense than that. What I meant to say was there are a few bright spots in history where people got themselves responding together to God in a way that the potential of the church was realized, maybe not completely in its fullness, but we saw some evidence of what it could be if we all respond the way they responded. That's all I was saying. But no, God is at work in his church, even though in many cases it's not what it should be. He is still at work in his church, and I did not want to deny that fact. God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for these faithful people who so beautifully not only articulated a concept of a Christ-focused thought and will and life. We thank you that you've given us the same power and that if we respond as they did, that you will do the same thing for us. We thank you for faithful people that maybe didn't understand all of this, but we're following Jesus honestly. We've had many of them in our heritage. Oh, God, help us not to turn to that other theology. Before people leave and go to those other ways of thinking, oh, God, help them stop and consider the tremendous concepts and heritage that they are leaving, and help us all, Lord, to be more honest about what we know Jesus wants us to do. In his name we pray, amen. I said I would summarize. Would you pass out the handouts? Um, This won't take long. (coughs) And I'll do this while they're handing them out. I wanted to summarize what I said. David Brousseau did this for me some years ago. And so we'll just use his his little summary. (coughs) On the left-hand side, you have Reformation Protestantism. And I told you that this doesn't all hold true in every case today because some of it's been modified. But this is the base. This is this is the uh, concepts out of which it grew. <clears throat> a primary emphasis on the- theology. A primary emphasis on living the Christ life. Systematic theology. A simple, unadorned text of Scripture. New Testament books treated hierarchically. I mean, the reformers—they uh, had. Uh, Bible translations, where they told you at the beginning of each book exactly which ones were important and which ones weren't. Anabaptism, New Testament books, all treated on the same level. If anything, a primary focus on the Gospels to make sure that all the rest of them harmonized. Protestantism depended heavily on proof text. Anabaptism looked at the totality of New Testament teachings. Reformed theology, primary focus on pseudo-Pauline theology. Pseudo means not true primary focus on the teachings of Jesus by the Anabaptists. Reformation Protestantism, a gospel about Jesus. Anabaptism, a gospel of Jesus. Reformation Protestantism, Ten Commandments as a foundation for Christian living. They want to make sure there's a copy of those in every courthouse and everywhere they can put them. And we're not uh, in any way diminishing the importance of the Ten Commandments, but that's not our focus. We believe that anyone who lives in Christ will, uh, against such there is no law. Focus of the Anabaptists, Sermon on the Mount as foundational for Christian living. Non-resistance, non-taking of oaths, not accumulating wealth. State church on the Reformation side, Anabaptism, free voluntary church. Reformation Protestantism, born and baptized into the church. Anabaptism, enter the church through personal decision. And then you have infant baptism, believer's baptism. On the left-hand side, little said about the new birth. Anabaptists, emphasis on the new birth. On the left, total depravity of mankind, including infants, anabaptism, innocence of infants. We are fallen, but not totally depraved or unable to do anything good. On the left hand side, predestination, on the right hand side, free will. On the left hand side, combination of church and state, and a baptism doctrine of two kingdoms. On the left hand side, attempting to Christianize all society, and a baptism separation from the world. And on the left, persecution of other Christians, and on the right, persecution of no one. God bless you. And I don't want you to be Anabaptists. I want you to be followers of Jesus and use them as your inspiration. God bless you. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit thedocforlearning.org.